Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Complete Center's Guide. I am your host, Tyler Fowler, and tonight on CSG, I have invited two brothers in Christ, Stuart Brogdon and Ian Michael Renwick, to discuss biblical interpretation, the nature of God's redemptive plan, and the relationship of Israel and the church. These specific topics are fundamental to the systems of thought each of our guests are representing tonight, namely New Covenant theology represented by Stuart and Mid-Acts dispensationalism represented by Ian. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me tonight. I'm super, super excited to have you guys on and let's just jump right in, shall we? Stuart, what is going on, man? So you've been on the show before, and you we've actually discussed uh, New Covenant theology. And so it, for those who maybe don't remember you or might not know you, Stuart, what, who are you, and why do you hold to New Covenant theology? If you want to just go ahead and jump right into your 8- to 10-minute opening statement, brother, you have the floor. All right, so... You know, I was a false Christian for 30 years, got uh, actually converted when I was 38, started studying the Bible and teaching it, and I uh, got trained up as an elder in a 1689 fellowship. And as I was studying that, I discovered they were wrong on the law and a little bit on the covenants. So I started studying more diligently, and I don't filter everything through NCT because it's, you know, it's, a, it's not a monolithic system, but sure. I find much in there that I hold to. And uh, <clears throat> I've written two books, one called Captive to the Word of God and one called The Gospel in Isaiah, which is a Christ-focused walk through that book. And I've also published a lot of old books. But anyway, getting into it, New Covenant theology is not new theology about covenants. It's theology about the New Covenant. And Blake White has a helpful list of seven distinctives, which I've added a little commentary to. So I'll run through his seven distinctives. Number one. It is one plan of God centered on Jesus Christ. If God has two plans, or if he responds with plan B to something his creatures did or did not do, not the sovereign Lord and rule of everything, but he's a lesser being who has to learn and change his plans, plans in light of time. Number two, the Old Testament is to be interpreted in light of the New Testament. Um, I would say it a little differently. I'd say... Everything prior to the New Covenant passages has to be interpreted in light of the New Covenant passages because the Old Covenant bleeds into the New Testament quite a bit. But at any rate, since revelation from God to man is progressive in nature, those who live later in history have more light from God culminating in the advent, the first advent of the Lord Jesus. And Jesus and the apostles that he gathered to himself provide examples of appropriating Old Testament scriptures in a way that only a regenerate Jew would accept. Uh, don't muzzle the ox, the way Paul said. That's not even written for them. It was written for us, so that the man who labors in the word will be fed while he's laboring. Uh, so it's a complete reappropriation. Number three, the Old Covenant was temporary by divine. The nation of Israel was began in a space and time with a twofold mission to be a unique people among other nations, so they, be, they would be known as gods, and two, to be guarded as a people 
And this is what the law did. It was a guardian to the people until the promised seed came. And when Messiah came, the reasons for ethnic Israel ended and it had to decrease just as John the Baptist had to decrease. The fulfillment of the types and shadows had come and the shadows flee when the substance arrives. Number the law of Moses is a unit. Of the Bible, the Mosaic law is spoken of as a whole. And there's many passages I could cite, Galatians 3.10, Galatians 5.3, James 2.10. You break the law at one point, you break the whole law. And so we look at the law of Moses, including the Decalogue, to be given only to those people. Now, there's law in every covenant and you know they have things in common because they all come from god so people see some continuity sure but there's also discontinuity because the structure of the covenants is different number five christians are not under the law of moses but under the law of christ a covenant ended its law ceased it ended as a as a functioning law and as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, the things written about Israel were put in there for our benefit. And although the old covenant is ended and its law no longer serves in a regulatory sense, all of it is scripture as revelation and useful to God's people. Number six, all members of the new covenant have the Holy Spirit. Everyone in the new covenant will know the Lord, Jeremiah 31 be given a new heart of flesh and have the Holy Spirit within them, Ezekiel 36. And there's only one new covenant. There's not two. There's only one body of Christ, not two. The seventh point, the church is eschatological Israel. Just as the Levitical religious rites and structures were types of the heavenly things, as Hebrews 8, 1 through 5 says, which had within it a people who did not have to have faith in God to be in that covenant community. So covenant Israel was a religious community, but God to be in it. Now, there were some believers in that community, but it wasn't a requirement for being in there. The new covenant people are the sanctuary of God and New Jerusalem. And this is revealed in several places, including 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, 6, 19, 2 Corinthians 6, 16, Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, 1 Peter 2, 5. Galatians 4.26 and Revelation 22, verse 2. And those who believe on Christ are the children of Abraham, according to promise. This is Luke 3.8, Galatians Romans 4.11-12. These are the true Jews, called so by Paul in Romans 2.29, and the Israel of God, shown in Matthew 2.13 and 15 and Galatians 6.16, because the saints are in union with Christ. And when he is called the Israel of God, and when he was called out of Israel, I've called my son, every, all the promises are fulfilled in him. And our union with Christ, which we have because we are his, means that those promises, we are joint heirs with him, the scripture says. Everything we have is because of him. Now, these distinctives have been believed and taught since apostolic times. And you have writers such as Justin Martyr, Tertullian, and Ignatius spelling critical agreement with what teachers such as Blake White teach. And I could give you quotes from those guys, but I won't take up your time doing it. And I will say, uh, I'll give you a quote from uh, Charles Spurgeon. 
critical to the proper understanding of the Bible is the covenants revealed therein. And Spurgeon said, the doctrine of the covenant lies at the root of all true theology. I am persuaded, he said, that most of the mistakes which men make concerning the doctrines of Scripture are based on fundamental errors with regards to the laws, the covenants rather, of law and grace. The covenant of works was do this and live, O man, but the covenant of grace is do this, O Christ, and thou shalt live, O man. And I would say that Spurgeon was using language that's familiar amongst the Reformed guys, but the covenant of works is an ambiguous term. And what Spurgeon was referring to is the Mosaic covenant, which was conditional. Do this and live. I will be your God if you do these things. And the new covenant is what he called the covenant of grace because it is a grace-based covenant. And one of the fundamental principles of the new covenant is that all the redeemed are members that therein without any distinction or division. One body in Christ, no Jew or Gentile division between believers. No unbelievers are in there. Only those who have been born, born from the spirit can see the kingdom. And so it's critical to understand that people who invite lost people to meet with them is not a problem with that. That's not evangelism. It's not a problem with that. People who allow lost people, unconverted people to be voting members, so to say, in the local assembly are playing with fire. And embedded in the covenant structure of the Bible is that of law. And I mentioned before, each covenant has its own law and regulations for those within that covenant. And when that covenant ends, it's functioning as such, and it no longer serves as regulation, but it exists as revelation for all who are in Christ. So I don't know how much time has gone, but I think I'm yeah. going to close right there. All right, Stuart, thank you so much for that. Um, Ian, you're up, buddy. So what is mad? Why are you mad, bro? <laughs> Mid-Acts dispensationalism. So what? So this is actually the first time I've ever heard of Mid-Acts dispensationalism, but take it away, brother. Eight oh, to ten fair. minute opening yeah, statement. Yeah, so my name is Ian Renwick, and I can't believe you first middled and last knew, bro. That was, that was, <laughs> only my mom does that. Anyway, uh, my name is Ian Renwick, and I am an associate pastor here at a mid-acts church in Stephen City, Virginia, by the name of Valley Bible. We are in the, the gorgeous Shenandoah Valley, and it is allergy season. So if you hear me clearing my throat or coughing, it is because I am under attack by the pollen. Um, anyway, I, uh, I live, eat, Sleep and Breathe Mid-Acts Dispensational Theology, and it is a rather obscure branch. Uh, but first, before I start with my opening statement in earnest, I'd like to thank Tyler for having me on and Stuart for being my discussion partner this evening. It's an honor to sit down with such wonderful men of God, and it's my hope that both Stuart and I can uh, both represent the virtues of our distinctive views well and that we can have a fruitful and meaningful uh, conversation uh, of the topic at hand. Tonight, we are exploring two types of systematic theology and which can perhaps better frame the overarching narrative of Scripture. The goal for this evening's discussion between brothers in Christ is that to uh, have a, a conversation that is encouraging, educational, and one that serves to equip believers with practical tools they can use in their daily faith life. I've heard both New Covenant and Dispensational Theology called the new kids on the theological block, relatively speaking. And bearing this in mind, I think in order to have that fruitful and meaningful conversation, we need to define our terms. To that end, I would pose this question. What is a dispensation when biblically considered? In our modern view, we hear this word frequently 
and it's usually given in reference to a special permission allotted to do something outside of an institutional norm. But is that how those reading it in a biblical context would have understood it? The word translated in English as dispensation or administration is oikonomia in the original Greek. It's a compound word that literally means house laws or the rules by which a household is governed. Properly understood and defined, it is the management or direction of a household or household affairs or the management of another's property through administration, stewardship, and oversight. It is where our word economy comes from, literally the, the meaning the house rules by which our financial institutions are run. This word appears nine times in the New Testament in various forms. Uh, Luke uses it three times. Paul uses it the other six. And one of the most famous uses of this word is when Paul says in Ephesians 3, 1 through 2, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. At its most basic level, dispensational theology seeks to discern the various house laws that God uses over the course of history in his ongoing relationship with humanity. Dispensational theology also asserts that it is not the message of God that changes over that same course of history, but rather it is the means through which that message is conveyed that changes. In traditional dispensational theology, there are as many as eight dispensations to as few as three. The traditional dispensationalists hold to seven, those being one, innocence, which is creation through the fall, uh, conscience, which is the fall through the flood, three, which covers uh, human government uh, going from post-flood through the promise, four is promise, that uh, of the promise given to Abraham, to the giving of the law through Moses, fifth, the law, the giving of the law of Moses uh, through the start of the church. The seventh then would be the dispensation of grace or the dispensation of the church which begins with the start of the church and continues through to the millennial kingdom. And finally, the millennial kingdom or the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. In each change of dispensation, there is a new set of rules that governs how man is to relate to God and indeed toward one another. Unless specifically countermanded, rules from previous dispensations continue through. In each case, there is one person who is given stewardship of the dispensation, who is then responsible for communicating the new oikonomia to the target audience. Examples being Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and Paul. Each dispensation is brought about by God having its beginning and ends with failure. This failure, however, is not a failure on the part of God, but rather on a failure of man in keeping the house rules. As there are many different flavors of covenant theology, there are also many different flavors of dispensational theology. There are three uh, main branches of dispensationalism, and each is defined by where in Acts they place the beginning of the church and the body of Christ. The largest share goes to uh, what is known as Acts 2 dispensationalism. This stance espouses the belief that the church begins with Peter's sermon and subsequent conversion of thousands of people at Pentecost. This is where people will normally associate with dispensationalism. This view would support that the church is at least the fulfillment of some of the Old Testament prophecies. The second, more extreme view is what is known as Acts 28 dispensationalism. This is often called hyper-dispensationalism. This view purports that the church did not begin until Paul revealed it as the plan of God, which was an unveiled mystery, or which was an unveiled mystery beforehand, but that Paul did not declare this revelation until after Acts 28 at the conclusion of his ministry. It holds that the belief that the church fulfills none 
of the Old Testament prophecies, and this is a minority view among dispensationalists. Finally, there is that of mid-Acts dispensationalism, which is what I hold to. This view espouses the idea that the church as we know it, the body of Christ, started with the ministry of the Apostle Paul. The reason this view is called mid-Acts is due to the location of the transition period from Peter and the Twelve in Jerusalem to the apostleship of Paul and his ministry between Acts 9, starting with his conversion, and beginning in earnest in Acts 13 with the first missionary journey. This view holds that the church, the body of Christ, is neither the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy nor of New Testament prophecy, but is a new, previously unrevealed work of God, according to Ephesians 3, 4 through 5, Colossians 1, 24 through 27. In fact, Ephesians 5, 3, or 3, 5 reads, the mystery which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. A fourth branch is gaining some popularity, what is uh, called a progressive dispensationalism, which actually seems to have much in, co in common with New Covenant theology. However, no matter which branch or flavor we're talking about, in dispensationalism there is a heavy emphasis on the progressive revelation of God's plan for the salvation of the world. And because of the nature of this progressive revelation, the only newness is from our perspective. Mid-Acts dispensationalism also has several distinctives that we are going to be discussing tonight. The first of these are, one, literal interpretation, which means getting to the plain meaning of the text. The second is the distinctiveness of the Apostle Paul's ministry. Third, Jew-Gentile equality in the one new man. Four, a distinction between the literal Israel and the church being two programs. Fifth, the beginning of the body of Christ as to when the church began in Acts 13. The cessation of the sign gifts with the completion of Scripture, one baptism, that being of the Holy Spirit, and the pre-tribulation rapture. A common saying among mid-Acts dispensationalists, uh, dispensationalists is this, while all the Bible is for us, not all the Bible is to us. These distinctives help us determine which sections of the Bible are to us as the body of Christ. When compared, there is much that is similar between New Covenant theology and dispensational theology, especially where the fundamentals are concerned. But there is also much that is different. NCT relies heavily on an allegorical interpretation of Scripture, especially of the Old Testament with regards to the church, as opposed to interpreting it literally consistent with its plain meaning. Another point of dissimilarity would be regarding the modern identity of Israel, with respect to what is known as replacement theology. DT would hold that God is not done with national, ethnic, literal Israel, as attested to by the scriptures written after the founding of the church, specifically the future restoration of the nation of Israel, spoken of in Romans 9 through 11. If the church has superseded or replaced Israel, what need is there then for restoration of Israel? The church is seen as a separate and unique work of God. The church is never described as a nation in scripture, and as understood from Pauline theology, the church is described as a body, as a new man. Any mention of a nation is always in reference to literal Israel. And Gentiles are always referred to not as a nation, like Israel, but rather as nations. Another area of difference is with regards to the intended end of covenants. Dispensational theology would say that God has only ever had one covenant people, that being literal Israel, as opposed to an old covenant people and a new covenant people being the church. The body of Christ, as defined by Paul, was clearly not in the Old Testament, and to read the church back into the Old Testament yields an inconsistent hermeneutic, consistent with the anachronism fallacy. 
God only has one covenant people, that being Israel. Now, while the church certainly has shares in the new covenant concerning salvation specifically, it has not eschatologically replaced Israel as God's covenant people. In fact, God has a redemptive plan for both literal Israel and for the church, the body of Christ. I look forward to discussing these differences as well as our similarities over the course of the next couple of minutes. And again, thank you for this opportunity. Absolutely. So beautiful. Thank you guys so much for those opening statements in depth. I love it. Like good overview of everything. Uh, so just real quick, Ian, I want to um, clarify something real quick. You mentioned two different programs uh, in your opening statement. Can you kind of um, go into that just a little bit? What do you mean by two programs, one for the church, one for Israel? Right. So dispensational theology would hold that up and that everything that Jesus did was to and for the nation of Israel. In fact, he tells the Syrophoenician woman that I have not come to you being Gentiles, but I have come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so God's plan for the nation of Israel was the, the culmination of the kingdom. So we see that go the gospel that goes out is the gospel of the kingdom. And we see this consistently preached by both Jesus and the apostles. And so the, the two programs would then be uh, God's kingdom program for the Jews and then God's redemptive work once the Jews had rejected uh, in Acts chapter 7 the message of the gospel of the kingdom. The shift then happens, and we see that happen over the, the middle chapter of Acts there, to the plan that God then has to redeem the world through the rejection that was done by the Jews, um, which now includes instead of Gentiles going to the Jews— for salvation, as was the plan in the kingdom, uh, we see Jews and Gentiles now on equal footing in the body of Christ, being able to come and access that salvation uh, together. So that's kind of what we mean by two separate plans. If, if in Acts chapter 7, the nation of Israel as a whole, with its leadership, uh, specifically the Sanhedrin, had not rejected Stephen's offer of the kingdom, we believe that God's plan would have kept going. Um, culminating in that 70th week of Daniel uh, and all of the apocalyptic prophecies Jesus gives specifically in the Olivet Discourse, all of those would have come very rapidly to happen. And there's, um, there's, there's a culmination there where the, the millennial kingdom would have happened then. But with the rejection that national Israel goes through, there's a pause that's pressed on that. Uh, and then you have this intercalation or this parenthetical insertion of the church. And we often get accused of saying, well, the church is just plan B. That's not what we say. Uh, I love what Andy Wood says about this. He says the church was never plan B. The church was the unrevealed, preordained plan of God. So that's, that's kind of what we mean by uh, two different programs. One was the gospel of the kingdom. And then Paul clearly says he, he goes really far to distinguish his gospel from that of the gospel of the 12. He consistently says, my gospel, my gospel, my gospel, to distinguish that they're two separate things. And so we take that pretty literally. Uh, you have the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of the um, of gospel of grace that Paul ushers in in Ephesians chapter 3. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that uh, clarification, man. Really appreciate it. All right, Stuart, what do you think about what um, Ian said? Is there's, uh, We definitely see some similarities and we definitely see some differences. And I know we're going to talk about God's redemptive plan uh, for Israel, for the church, as well as the eschatological, is, is the church eschatological Israel. Um, but what did you think about Ian's uh, opening statement? <laughs> 
I find the uh, in-house fight about when did the church so-called begin to be humorous. The insistence on literal grammatical interpretation, plain sense, I think is sophomoric, quite truthfully, because contrary to when the plain sense make, of Scripture makes common sense, so seek no other sense. The plain, plain sense of Scripture often contradicts the true meaning of Scripture, and our common sense often makes no heavenly sense. And so, to and also, you know, too much on word studies just by um, dispensationalists. The definition of the word is not the same everywhere it appears. It changed by context, and it also is the context is part of the reflection of the genre of literature in which that word is found. And to be dividing the redemptive plan, Jesus had one plan for the Jews and Paul had another plan for the Gentiles, goes against everything that I see in scripture, that there's one plan of redemption and that the Paul's gospel that he called it, he was, he was repeatedly demonstrating to his audience that he was an apostle. He was one called out of time. And he went back, it says that he went back and checked after a certain number of years to the apostles and the first, the, the brothers there in Jerusalem to check, to make sure that everything was the same between his gospel and theirs. So he didn't have a different gospel. It's one gospel and Jesus started it and his earthly ministry was to the Jews because the salvation was first to the Jews. The foundation stone was built on Christ and the apostles, not Jesus and a few of the apostles for the Jews and Paul all together by himself for the rest of the world. It's not how it's portrayed. And I would say that it's pejorative for a dispensationalist to say that we teach replacement theology. The new covenant replaced the old, but the, the, the Gentiles, people call the church, that's not a, not a translation of the Greek word ekklesia, the called ones of God. It's just a, it's just a word that the, state church people love uh there's one plan and the the covenant replaced the old covenant but the romans 11 olive tree metaphor shows that you've got national israel you've got some jewish branches that are unbelieving broken off and you've got some wild branches who are gentiles being grafted in it's one body it's not two separate ones and all every time that nation is used is talking about Israel is flat out not true. Peter is writing to Christians that are Jewish and Gentile in uh, mid-Asia, Asia Minor, Turkey, we would know it. And he's writing to these Christians and he says they are a chosen people, royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his Christ's possession, the one who called him out of darkness into his marvelous. He's quoting some Old Testament scriptures and them to the saints. He's not writing to Jews as Jews. He's writing to people who have been redeemed and they are not finding their identity in their nationhood because that nation no longer exists today. In the time that they lived, that nation was quickly coming to an end. And they don't have their records. They don't know who Jews are by their genetic codes. They don't have a nation. They don't have a covenant. They're in Adam if they're not in Christ. And it was a mystery revealed because you couldn't see the children of Abraham being Gentiles, not Jews, 
unless you had the Holy Spirit to give you life so that you can understand, oh, and father of many nations includes Jews and Gentiles, the whole new one man in Christ. Mm -hmm. Now, it does seem like to me anyway, whenever I read the Old Testament, that there are prophecies of the Gentiles being grafted into this covenant, right? And so, Ian, let me right. just ask whenever, um, let me just ask you this real quick, Ian. Is God is dealing salvifically with Israel today, right? Like they're not just put on, go ahead. Right. They're, yeah. So Paul talks about that Jew Gentile equality, right? Mm -hmm. Now, now there is no distinct people of God in the same way that the nation of Israel was a distinct people of God. Now it's this one new man that's very that's very different in form than what the nation of Israel was, the kingdom was to be originally. Okay. So um, I, he mentioned he uh, Stuart. You mentioned First Peter. Um, it, it's interesting to me. I, we're teaching through First Peter right now um, in a, in our sermon series uh, called uh, "Embracing Opposition," and. Uh, it's interesting to me that he that Peter opens it this way. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, right? So the, the dispersion, the diaspora, is a uniquely ethnically Jewish term that is used to describe ethnic Jews who are uh, not in Jerusalem, who are not in Israel. And so Peter is writing to Jewish believers. Um, talking that to them about it being a holy nation as Jewish believers, not necessarily uh, referring to. So when he says it's they're a holy nation, he's not talking about uh, the 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 Gentiles there. It's not talking about the church. It's a repeat. Uh, I believe it's a prophecy in Isaiah. He's showing kind of the fulfillment there. What I want to what I want to address. Um, uh, Stuart mentioned Ephesians chapter three, um, and I really want to kind of hammer this down. Because if we're saying that the church now has replaced Israel or has in some never way... Said that. I never said that. You said that. I, I don't hold to that at all. So, okay. It's superseding to Israel. It is the new Israel. No, Israel. no. It's Israel fulfillment is, theology. It's, fulfillment theology. That Again, that's just... Uh, from what I've studied, that's another name for replacement theology, which I'm fine with. No, that's um, not, not, not it at all. So, so let me jump. Let me just jump in real quick. What is the difference, Stuart, between replacement theology and fulfillment? Okay, so replacement is when one puts another away, takes the place of another, like the new covenant replaced the old covenant. That's not what's happening with the people involved. You had regenerate, you had regenerate saints in national Israel that were the tree, the olive tree. And the Gentiles are grafted into that to make one people. So it's fulfillment. It's adding to, not replacing. They're not the same thing at all. Well, okay, so then let me ask you, let me ask you this. Um, what happened to Israel? Because as a nation? As, no, just in general, what happened to Israel? If, if the church is now Israel, then old Israel has now been replaced or subsumed in some way. And that's kind of what I was getting at. Um, but well, really, see, Israel, Israel has been Israel has been fulfilled in Christ. He is has the been faithful in Israel, the church, right? Has been subsumed. No, in the it's church. no, it's not. It's fulfilled in Christ. It's not replaced by anything. They had their time and time and space, and they were types and shadows, like their Levitical religion was, and they had to be made closely after the pattern of the heavenly things. 
And types and shadows go away when the fulfillment, the anti-type comes. And so Israel as a nation, they don't even know who their people are. They've made up so, rules. They don't have records. What I'm getting at is this. So would you agree? Okay, so here's, here's my favorite question to ask covenant theologians or new covenant theologians. Would you say that there are appreciable, meaningful, and impactful differences between the old covenant and the new covenant that influence the way that we live and behave today? Yeah, there's tons of differences between okay. the covenants. Right. So that's what dispensational theology teaches, that there are differences. So my favorite joke to pull on covenant theologians is you're just two-point dispensationalists. Uh, but here's, here's my, here's my because you recognize that there are distinctions and that there are differences between the house rules that have been given. Um, here's where I want to get into is you mentioned Ephesians chapter 3, and Paul says for, in verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to you, a mystery that was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly, when you have read this, you can perceive the mystery of my insight, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has only now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. My contention and the contention of most dispensationalists is that you're not going to find the church in the Old Testament because Paul clearly says here that it was not revealed or prophesied about in the uh, Old Testament. Wait, 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 wait. Paul isn't talking anywhere in this passage about the church. And I don't even like to use that term because it's not a translation of ecclesia. It's a made up word. Uh, he's not even talking about that in this here. And notice he says it was not revealed to people in other generations, but has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the spirit. Right. Not to Paul alone. But see, the mystery, the mystery is that no, Gentiles are included in the ecclesia of Christ. The mystery is that Gentiles are included in the ecclesia of Christ. Right. Okay. So through whom was it revealed, though? It was, it says right here, is revealed to the holy apostles and prophets. No, it was there revealed are, to Paul, and Paul told it to the apostles and the prophets at the Council no, of Jerusalem. No, no, because it, Paul says he went and he went and met with the others who came before him and checked to make sure right. but what that is, what, what is he called his gospel was not something new. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of man, but has now been made known to his holy apostles and prophets. He also says that this mystery was made known to him specifically. Uniquely. Sure, it was made known, and known to him and, specifically. And, so he because, takes, and he also says in Galatians that he did not derive his authority nor his message from Jerusalem in the 12th. So you can't say that he got this message, this gospel from the apostles in Jerusalem. When he I did not, I did not say that Ian. I never said that. Don't, don't say something assuming implying that I said that Paul was called out of time and he was taught by Christ and it was revealed to him. But yet after three years, he went to Jerusalem and he checked what he had been taught to make sure that it was the same as they had been taught. No, he he it wasn't to given to him to by tell them, them about the revelation. He never derived his message. He never had to check his message with the apostles. He was saying, "Here's what why? I have been commissioned to do," and they said, "Yes, you have been commissioned to do that. Go. We will go to the Jews. You will go to the Gentiles." That was why. Why make that distinction um, if there's clearly a difference between what Peter's and the twelve's mission was 
and Paul's own mission to the Gentiles. And that's why he spent so much time going to the Jews, isn't it? He got kicked out of countless synagogues because he couldn't keep his hands off the Jews. But he was specifically sent, called, I mean, in Acts 9, he, Jesus tells him, you will be my apostle to whom? The Gentiles. I, I have no argument about yeah. that. I have no argument about that. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. See, the the salvation, went, is... salvation, went, salvation went first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. And so the timing of that was that, Paul, your main charge is go to the Gentiles. I'm not arguing against that. Yeah. But, yeah. I, the, the problem that I have with saying that you find shadows and types of the church in Israel is clearly, I mean, this is not the only place that Paul says this, that it wasn't revealed. So that's why, I like, like I said, I like what Andy Wood says, where it was the unrevealed preordained plan of God. Nobody knew about it because it had never been prophesied about. If you Nobody knew at, about if what? If you look in the Old Testament, all of the prophecies Nobody knew about what? Wait, wait, wait. Nobody knew about what? Say that again? What did nobody What did nobody know about? Nobody knew about the church because it hadn't been prophesied. I mean, Paul wasn't talking about the church in, Act, in Ephesians 3. That he's word's talking not about there. The yeah, I mean, he literally goes through <clears throat> 3 and 4 and talks about Especially in the reference of uh, in the second half. No, he's talking about two. Gentiles being hey guys, hey guys. Let me jump in real quick. So Ephesians Please three. Do. I just want to. I just want to read it from the NET. Um, three verse one. For this reason, I Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, that by revelation the mystery was made known to me, as I wrote as I wrote briefly before when reading this you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not disclosed to people in former generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, namely that through the gospel the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel according to the gift of God's grace that was given to me uh, by the exercise of of his power. So Ian, let me ask you this, what you're seeing here, whenever Paul says the mystery, are you saying that that's a reference to the church that or or this is a mystery to Jew Gentile inclusion and he does go on later especially in verse what is it verse 10 to mention the church. So this is all one uh, unit that Paul is talking about here. So he's the church itself, the body of Christ is the union of Jew and Gentile in this particular intercalation that exists between the 69th and the 70th week of Daniel. Um, I agree that ecclesia, church is, church is not a made up word. It means the same thing in old English that it does. In, it's an assembly. It's a congregation. It's not a made no, it up doesn't. word. It's just, no, it doesn't. Huh? It's from, it's from a, it's from a Gaelic word that means circled place of worship associated with pagans. I've, I've looked yeah, into this here, in several yeah. different places yeah. and it doesn't it's mean not, ecclesia. Yeah. No, it, it, but it's ta- it's, it keeps that same idea. It's an assembly. The, no, it's not. The, it's a place. But the point is, the point is that the mystery is God's, is that Gentiles are included. And the called out ones includes everybody in every generation in the, what's called the universal body of Christ. Well, then let me ask you this, Stuart. Anytime we see the word ecclesia, does it always mean the same thing? No, it doesn't. It varies by context, because I, in, I would agree with you. In, I would agree with you. So, so yeah. here, here is my question to you: Is the church that Paul is talking about the same as the church that Peter is, or that Jesus is talking about, 
when he's talking about upon you are Peter. Uh, I believe it's Matthew 16. Uh, I think it's uh, 18 where he says, uh, you are Peter. And upon this rock, will I build my church? Um, is that the same? Is that the same church? Is that the same assembly um, as say what, what Peter or what Paul is talking about? Because I would, yes. I would contend that they're two different things. No, there's only and one the reason, body of Christ. There's no. Okay. The, the, the nation of Israel as, is always called the kingdom. It is never called the body of Christ because that plan hadn't been revealed yet. So, or that part of the plan had not been revealed yet. So you can't, you can't point to any instance where, where Jesus says, this is the body of Christ. Or, who's the only one who ever makes mention of the body when, of Christ? When he, when he, when he had, had time out, time out. Who, who's who's the, the only gospel, person who makes the, mention of the body of Christ? In, in the gospel accounts, when he goes to what we call the Last Supper, this is the bread is my body. Take it and eat. He's identifying him and his body with his people right there. And this is the no, cup of the covenant the in my blood. And bread with his sacrifice, not with a specific people, because he talks about the blood. So his body must be broken and his blood must be shed. Sure, that's to right. Read, to, read, to read body into that is the anachronistic or equivocation fallacy. You can't, you can't force that on the text. It doesn't say that. What he's talking about is the sacrifice that he used to, to make okay, so on tell the me cross. What, it has so nothing tell to me, do with the body so, of Christ. So, so tell me this. You're, you got the classic dispensational definition of dispensations as periods of time. And your first definition was that it's not periods of time, but it's household administration stewardship. Right. So, right. you know, it is. It's, it's not periods of time, but that's a minor point. It's irrelevant. Even Charles Lyrie said those are irrelevant. But if you don't think that Jews and Gentiles in that one tree, we'll call them a tree. Jews and Gentiles are in one tree. The root is Christ. The only goodness that comes to anybody is being in Christ. So, okay, we have right. the tree that is Christ. Not nationally, not kingdom plan wise. There's, there's, because so Israel there's, does there's not the, exist so what, anymore. What, what, is, what, is, what is Peter's message? Peter or Jesus' message? Jesus' message is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Right? What That's is right. And he's not. Message. And when he stood Peter's before Pilate, he said, "His kingdom, the kingdom is not of, of this God world." Is at hand. And it's not yes, of this world either, because he's bringing it down. But in the in the millennial reign, that will certainly be established. That's that's no, the, the no. Point. You're wrong again. You got you got your eyes fixed on the earth, not on the heavens. Which Scripture says, "Keep your eyes fixed." His kingdom is not going to come down until the earth is made new. There's not going to be some rebellion against Christ after he comes back. Men fall down in terror. You see that in Revelation chapter 6. When he comes back the one time, it's going to be to judge the nations, gather his people, and make all things new. There, there's, there's, Yes, there's the singular coming of Christ, but it happens after, or the second coming, but it happens after the rapture. That's, that's, that's there is no, there, there no pre-trib rapture. Well, then what does Nobody Paul mean by the catching away? What is, what is the what is First Thessalonians when Paul talks about the catching up in a, in the that, twinkling that of an right eye will there, be caught up? That that right there apply you know is a is a word and a phrase that Roman history that when a conquering general comes back into town, the people throng out to see him and they walk back into town with him. And so what's going to happen uh, when caught, Jesus caught comes again? Seems to be very specific. They're going to come. They're going to be. They're going to be drawn up to him. Those that are alive are going to be drawn up to him, and they're going to come down to the new earth with him when that happens. 
It's going to happen like confusing that. Israel and the church. There's a distinction. No, I'm not. Because Israel Revelation, as, as, as Arnold, as Arnold Frutenbaum says from DTS, he is a, he's a, he's a messianic Jew. He is very clear in the fact that revelation is God's revealing of his plan for national Israel, for Jewish well, believers, Jew for the remnant that. that comes in. He's a messianic a Jew. A Jew. He's a messianic Jew who not a happens to be very well respected in the field. But again, you're, you're the the. I've never read a messianic you, Jew who wasn't Jew first. I discount everything they say because they're Jewish first. That seems rather anti-Semitic. That's 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 the problem. See, and that's the problem with whether you want to call it fulfillment theology or replacement theology or uh, even suppressionistic theology. There's always this kind of uh, dismissal of the Jewish people, and that, that I'm not dismissing Jewish people. See, you, you talk, you, you paint with such a broad brush. I never said I reject Jewish well, okay. people. Okay, you said, said you said I you never really listen attention. to anything a Jew has to say on the gospel. That I didn't say that. I said I don't pay attention to Messianic Jews. I've read several of their right. books. So and let's get they're Jewish. Yeah, that's, that's, they've that's, got a uh, Jewish perspective. So let's get back on track here, guys. So. Guys, let's get back on track here. So go ahead and finish your thoughts, Stuart, and then I want to ask you a question. There's there's one bride, one household, one flock, and that's all there is. One body, one bride, one household, one flock. This okay. this wall has been broken down. Uh, Ian, you, you guys keep on trying to read. It's just torn down, and uh, it's just not what we are seeing in Scripture. You harp on the kingdom, and in the other Gospels, it's the heaven. It's the you know, kingdom and heaven are the same thing. Jesus is talking about his kingdom, which is not of this world. He's not talking about the Jewish kingdom. All right, uh, Ian, let me ask you a question real quick. So gathering, we've jumped around a lot of topics. So to get back kind of on track where we were going, do you believe that whenever the Gentiles, all the Gentiles are grafted in into the kingdom, do you believe that God will turn back to the Israel as a nation to save them like that? Or, or can you kind of clarify what you mean by whenever God turns back to the Jews? Hang on, Question I'm having some internet issues, so give me. Okay. So yeah, rephrase that question for me. If you yeah. Want. So whenever, so we we all believe that whenever you know there's going to be a time where all the Gentiles are grafted in, all those who will be saved, you know, that are Gentiles in a sense, are going. That time's going to come to an end. So do you believe that whenever that time happens, that God will actually turn back to Israel as a nation and save them, like as a nation? Or is salvation individual? Yes. Okay, okay, fair enough. Yeah, uh, so, 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 okay, so hang on, hang on. So, so there's yeah. there's there's a distinction that I think needs to be made here. Yeah, please. So, right now, there is unity in the body of Christ between Jew and Gentile. There is no distinction salvifically, um, and there the the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down because what did what did Gentiles have to do in order to be saved? Well, they had to go to the Jews. That's why it's to the Jew first. And then the Gentile Gentiles had to go to the Jews to be saved. And it wasn't. And we see that all throughout the first couple of books of Acts, the Jews, the Gentiles were coming to Jews to be saved. Um, and that so the, the plan of God, when when the church uh, was revealed through Paul uh, and very clearly, Paul says it was revealed to him for <laughs> Gentiles and mm -hmm. that he didn't derive um, that he didn't derive it from any uh, extra uh, you know, he, he didn't derive it from the 12. He got it straight from, 
from uh, from from Christ himself. Uh, to say that he needed to check to see if it was right is a little erroneous because, I mean, if you're getting it straight from Christ himself, that, I mean, that seems to be the, the ultimate source, the ultimate authority. He's not going to need to get, you know, blessing from the 12. Um, there's, the, but when the, when the, um, when the number of Gentiles is full, when the church is complete, when everything has been done and the church eschatologically is taken out, then God returns um, to finish that last week, uh, Daniel talks about 70 weeks of Daniel. We have mm-hmm. seen 69. That seventh week has not yet kicked off, and that is what we're looking for, for the resumation of God's plan for remnant Israel. And, and it's not the nation that's going to be saved. It's those who, are, those who um, return to what their identity was always supposed to be in the first place as, um, tr- as, as true Israel. So, okay, fair enough. And I'm glad you said that word remnant. So in remnant theology, then let me just read Romans 11 or not, not the whole thing, but Paul, Paul goes on. He says, so I ask God has not rejected his people. Has he absolutely not for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham from Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says about Elijah? And he goes on to say that, you know, he's, you know, kept 7,000 people who have not been the need to uh, bail. Verse 5, so in the same way at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace, and if it is by grace, it is no longer by works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was diligent seeking, but the elect obtained it. The rest were hardened as it is written. So it seems to me what's going on, if you keep reading Romans 11, is that God is fulfilling his plan with the Jews as well. And it's this remnant, the elect, that are saved, both Jew and Gentile alike, in this context of the Jews. But it seems like there is a body of people that are Jewish that God is saving, and they're just the same as Gentiles in that sense. Do you agree with that? Or in that sense, how, right. I, how, I would so, agree with that. Uh, you know, okay. Good. No, I was just going to ask, so, so what that, is going to be... The word... Go ahead, you're good. Yeah. So, so Israel, uh, if I meant, if I remember correctly, is mentioned something like seventy-seven times in the New Testament. Uh, Seventy-one of those times, roughly ninety-two percent, are of of a specific people group. There are three times when it is used in reference to the land, and I think that, that there are two times when it's in disputed reference. So, if you're going to base an entire theology on on four percent of the mentions of a nation. That seems a little right. folly to me. Then you've got Jews, as is mentioned, 189 times, 87% of which refer to a specific people group. Two times it's referred to as the land, and then I think it's four times it's, re- it's disputed. So Jews so have a hard time believing this too. Well, like I said, if you're going to base a theology on three disputed verses, that that's a, or four disputed verses. I, I don't. Little, I don't. How can Romans little, two? How can Romans two twenty nine be disputed? So anyway, to answer your question, uh, properly understood, the Gentiles are not being drafted into Israel. They're being drafted into salvation. Uh, properly understood, <laughs> That's interesting. Um, it, it's better understood that, that it's, it's, um, it's a Midrashic uh, analogy. So Paul is very much a, Sadduce- or, excuse me, a Pharisee who is trained in Midrashic arguments, Midrashic tradition. And so he's borrowing this analogy from the Midrash, from the, or the Midrashic tradition, from the Old Testament to show how salvifically Gentiles are grafted in 
and how that's changed from what it once was. What 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 was it, and how is it how is it shown as a change to what was? Because what what how, again? How how were Gentiles saved in in times of old? Well, they had to come to the Jews and become Jewish in order to obtain salvation. How did they right? how did they That's obtain how, they, how did they obtain salvation by being Jewish? That was my okay. question. So, what, what's the what's what's the standard? What's the stand? What has the standard always been for salvation? Faith what's in Christ. Standard? Now, the standard is righteousness. No. Right? That's always been the I'm standard. The Lord Jesus. Righteousness. You get righteousness from nah, Jesus, not from yourself. No, the standard has always been righteousness, and and faith is counted as righteousness, and righteousness is what saves you. Right. That's the so the standard, the perfection that allows you to enter into salvation is righteousness. And often that righteousness, as we see in Scripture, is accredited to someone, Hebrews 11, by faith. But without that righteousness, you can't be saved. So righteousness is what is essential for salvation. And so what we see is in order to be saved, in order to come to a saving knowledge of God, whatever that meant in the Old Testament, I mean, there's a bunch of arguments we could have with that. They had to come to Israel to follow the law because the law set, shows what righteousness is is really and so if they're going to be uh, trying to attain hmm. righteousness trying to attain hmm. salvation they're going to come to the place that has what the prescription for righteousness is and come into that as a jew as a proselyte as a god fearer um and they they had to become jewish it that was that was how you but how are they saved how are salvation. they saved in that time what righteousness did they have that saved them back then ian well, it's the righteousness in the law. It was it was the That's faith heresy. that they had in the you, law. You are cursing them to hell. As Hold on. No man Hold has on, guys. ever been justified by the law. Hold on, guys, real quick. That's, uh, that's just real quick. So, Ian, are you saying that the Jews in the Old Covenant times and the Old Testament times were saved by works? I'm not saying they were saved by works. I'm saying they were saved by faith, and their faith was demonstrated through the keeping of the law, which was then accredited to them. That faith was accredited to them, to them as righteousness. Okay, but it was faith in God, correct? They they didn't have to it become Jewish, God, so God, to say, God said, but they God had faith said, in God. God said, "If if you are go if you do these things, you will be saved." Right? No, they had faith that God gave them these things to. Uh, I'm pretty sure Deuteronomy would argue with that. If you do these things, you will be blessed. If you do these things, you will be cursed. Right? There's a righteousness that's ascribed to people who are uh, putting their faith in the law and doing what it says. That's that's and you think that saved the them. faith that would have saved them in the Old Testament. That's bizarre. As a re yes, you you yeah, are I mean, you are a well, okay, Zionist. So, hey, hang on. So so Christ Christ was crucified before the foundation of the world, was he not? Where does it say that? Christ crucified before the foundation. Of the and what does that mean? Uh, let me get you. That's that so many that things wrong with your theology. It's, it's hard for me to keep up. We're. So we're running out of time. We've got about a minute left. Yeah. I do want to thank you guys for coming on. I really think that, you know, we'll definitely we'll all talk uh, off of air because I think that there's a lot that still needs to be said. If you guys are willing to have a part two to this discussion, I think it needs to happen. Um, or, or at least 13, eight is that is that reference is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. What's the reference? Revelation 13.8. That's a mistranslation. That's a mistranslation of that verse, but we can get into that. Uh, Tyler, yeah. I think a follow-up would be necessary.
and we'll yeah, have to I, set it down. We'll have to narrow the scope of what we're going to talk about. Absolutely, absolutely. So again, guys, thank you so much uh, for joining me on this. Um, we, I'm going to go back and listen. I, yeah, I think there's a lot that still needs to be said. But Ian, thank you, brother, so much. Stuart, thank you so much for coming back on. Uh, to do this and I'm I'm just like where can people find you guys at real quick um, Ian oh well we'll we'll be we'll take a break for next week and then uh, we will be back the following week so check us out I, I love you guys I love you so much and thank you for coming on uh, to this show thank you for listening and we'll see you next time on CSG good night God bless take care <laughs>